Matthew chapter 1. I heard a, a story that I don't know if it's true or not. It may just be urban legend, but a lot of times you hear it from nurses who work in the newborn section of the hospital. And there was a couple who, uh, they had a baby, and um, one of their uh, baby grew up and was a little, little child. And somebody finally asked, well, how did you come across that name? That's such an interesting name for a girl. And uh, they said, oh, well, actually, we didn't name the baby. And her name was Famali. And, and they said, what do you mean you didn't name it? Well, you know, when they brought him in, brought her in for the first time, she had a little thing on her wrist. And, you know, uh, the nurses named her for us, Famali. And uh, they thought, wow, that's, I've never heard of that before. How do you spell that? And the mother said, well, just like it sounds. F-E-M-A-L-E. -E. Female, you know. The point is this. Sometimes names, names can, can, can mean something. All of our names mean something um, somewhere along the, the, the way. This poor couple just thought that the nurses had named the, the, the child and they called her family. But in Matthew, we looked at last week the, the list of names that we, we checked out. And um, we looked at some of the different people involved. And we talked about how the grace of God is so essential in our lives and, and how God just kind of opened up this this uh, genealogy here and, and interjected people who needed his grace most at different points. They weren't all stellar, perfect people. Just like in this room, none of us are, are perfect here today. We all need God's grace. We all need God's favor. But in the first chapter here of Matthew, as we continue on there in verse 18, I want to read verses 18 to 25 for us. But I want you to notice as we begin to do that, there's three names here that are attributed to the child of Mary and Joseph. And we want to talk a little bit about that. And then we want to talk a little bit about some practical lessons maybe we can learn from Joseph himself. So follow along in your Bibles as I read Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or a righteous man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. There's a lot of meaning in people's names. And uh, I just want to kind of briefly look at these first three names that we see here for our Savior. The first one, there you see in verse 18, 
It says, now, this is how the birth of who? Jesus Christ came about. I want us to look at that the word Christ. What does that word actually mean? Um, it's not as much of a name as it is a title. And most of us understand that. It comes from the, the, the original language, Christos, which means anointed. It's the title, Christ means God's anointed one. Special one. And it corresponds to the Hebrew word, Messiah. Which also means God's anointed one. And so in the Old Testament, the word Messiah is primarily, it was used for kings uh, whom God would, would send uh, into the world to redeem um, different, different uh, nations and things like that. And God would anoint them for a special task at a certain point. And, and they were referred to as an uh, anointed one by God or a Messiah. And in, in Judaism, also the word became applied to the coming king from God, who he would send into the world to redeem the people of Israel. That's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the God's anointed one. Um, that word anointed is interesting in the Old Testament because it was, it was used for somebody who was being um, put into a leadership position. Samuel the prophet, you remember in the Old Testament, anointed Saul to be king. He anointed him. And then later he anointed David to be king. It was a religious ritual of the day that really had a, a great significance. It was, you might think of it as a public, a public proclamation that this man is set aside for God's service. In the ministry, they do ordination. You set somebody aside through an ordination process and you say, this man is committing his life or this woman is committing himself to uh, ministry. And it was uh, this religious ritual that they went through in the Old Testament and it really was saying that this person is authorized for God's service. In modern times, we think of, you know, in a couple, well, couple years, I guess, um, we'll be actually inaugurating a president, a new president. And it's, it's similar to that. The country comes together under one leader and says, hey, this is our president. It's a ritual that sets apart the man to serve in the capacity of that office. There can only be one president. There's not two. Well, just as we inaugurate our president here in the United States, God inaugurates or anoints Jesus to be our leader, our Lord. And I think that the idea that he's our leader, he's our Lord, it makes it a very personal thing. You know, when you're on, playing on sports and you have a captain of the team, you know, he's the team captain. You identify with him, you communicate with him, you, you know, you, you have to go out and work together. But you're under his kind of uh, mantle of, of authority or leadership. And the coach may not communicate to you, but he may communicate to the team captain what play is going to be called. And in the huddle, when you get together in the huddle, the team captain is the one that, that calls out the play. It's not up for grabs. You know, somebody can't say, well, no, I don't want to do that. We, we, I want to do this instead. I want to run that route. I want to run this route. It, it doesn't work that way. It would fall apart. But he is our ruler. Christ is our ruler. He's our king. You know, he's our Lord. Negative term you can use for him is he's our boss. <laughs> God anointed Jesus to protect us, to lead us through our daily lives, each and every day. 
And Israel had this concept of the Messiah as this deliverer, ruler, protector. They had that, and they thought that he would come, and, and obviously that he would deliver them from the Roman oppression. Rome was just oppressing Israel uh, with taxes and all sorts of rules and regulations, and they were looking for somebody to step up to the plate and say, hey, you know what, enough of this. I'm the new king, and we're not going to listen to you anymore. Let's take up arms against the Roman government, and we'll, we'll, we'll overthrow them. That's what they were looking for. That he would rule or govern them with righteousness and justice and that he would lead them into peace and prosperity. That's what they were looking for. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Though he didn't do it the way they expected him to do it. He established a kingdom, but it was a spiritual kingdom. It wasn't an earthly kingdom. It wasn't a political kingdom. I mean, aren't you glad that this isn't all there is? Aren't you glad that it's not just all about politics? It's not just all about everything that goes on around us, that we belong as Christians to a kingdom that is a spiritual kingdom that's set aside for us in heavenly places and, you know, no rust or moth, nothing corrupts. I mean, it's going to be incredible. That's the day I live for. I was talking to my brother Bob who lives down in Monterey the other day and uh, he had... Kind of, I don't know what happened. I got a call him today, actually, but he went in for a, uh, I don't know if it was actually a biopsy or something on his lung. He's got some spots on his lungs they're kind of worried about, and he's kind of abused his body over the years, and before he came to know the Lord, and he was an alcoholic and whatnot, smoked and drank. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, what are you, you know, you going to do? I mean, if it comes back and, you know, there's, he goes, well, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to do anything. Because I know where I'm going. <laughs> I, I'm going to go there, you know, as soon as possible. I'm tired of this down here. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. You know, not that, you know, if it's a little thing and be taken care of, then fine. But he's kind of ruled out this major stuff that they do nowadays because he, he, he realizes, that, hey, you know what? This is not my home. I'm just passing through. So you can pray for him that, uh, you know, God would be gracious to him. I don't think... He's done with them yet, but uh, I wrote him an email the other day and I said, you know what, Bob, I just want to encourage you and, and, and say that every one of us will die on time. <laughs> and that's so key. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of therapy or whatever you go through, you're going to die when God has appointed your time to die. But Jesus came to rule and, 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 and to reign in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. And being part of his kingdom isn't determined by where you live or where your nationality is. Because it's, it's determined by your heart. It's determined by what's going on inside. Whether or not you've given it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether or not he rules and he reigns in your life. He came to be your leader. He came to be your ruler, your king, your deliverer, your protector, your Lord. That's why we say that Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Not, not a board of deacons or a board of elders or a pastor. He's the head of the church. It's his church. And that's who we look to for, for leadership, for guidance. And that means that, you know what? He, he wants to guide us through everything in our life on a daily basis. He wants to lead you through decisions that you're making. He wants to uh, give you, you know, guidelines to follow that can best set out your, your path for the, for the best um, path for you. He knows everything about you. He's established laws as a king establishes laws. And they're for our benefit. Sometimes we think they want to box us in. You know, well, you know, there's all these rules and regulations in the Bible. That's not what the Bible's about. 
The Bible is a, a book of instruction given to us for our betterment. And once we know the Lord, once we come to understand that we have a personal relationship with Him, and He has forgiven us our sins, then we realize, wow, He does have our best interest at heart. And we do want to serve Him. We do want to understand what His, his regulations are and, and some of His principles that we can live by. Because He knows how we can live best. His laws aren't designed to hold us back, as some think. They're designed to move us forward, closer to Him. They're designed to protect us, to lead us into peace and prosperity, just like He came the first time. And the name of Christ tells us that Jesus is God's anointed ruler. And he wants not only to, to rule in the spiritual kingdom, he wants to rule in your heart. He wants to be your leader. He wants to be your Lord. That's his desire. He's the Christ. Secondly, the second name that we see there in verse 21 not only Christ, in verse 21 it says, He will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name, what? Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He's not only our leader or our Lord, but he's also our Savior. He's also our Savior. And it says, because he'll save them from their sins. That, that word Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, basically. Yeshua. It means the Lord saves. According to Jesus, he came into the reason into the world for one reason, and one reason only. In Luke 19.10 it says, For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save that which is lost. That's what his primary purpose in life was. He came to be our Savior. He came to save us from our sin. And there are two ways that he does that. I kind of wrote them down there, I think, in your outline. He forgives us of our sin, first of all. There's not one person in this room who hasn't sinned somewhere along the, ri the ride in life. And, and uh, a lot of us have probably built up quite a, a list of offenses against God. And if we stand before God and we try to get into heaven on our own merits, we would never ever make it. Ever. Our lives are filled with sin. Whether they're big or little doesn't make any difference. Either way, they pile up against us. Think of it this way. You know, I was praying yesterday that my, my son-in-law and daughter and two grandchildren left at like 7, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning yesterday, and they drove all the way to um, Oak Harbor, Washington, and I think she called about 9 or 10 and said they got home. And I remember even when I was going to bed, I was praying, hey, just let them get there safely. Because, you know, there's a lot of maniacs out there. You know, driving or whatever. I mean, you just don't know. You know, um, some people just don't have any business being on the road. You know, they got a, a shaver in one hand, a cell phone in the other, and they're steering with their knee, you know. I mean, got a hot cu cup of coffee between their legs, and it's just crazy. Putting on lipstick, they're trying to discipline the kids in the back seat, whatever it might be. But, I mean, you see them all every day. And they're, they're really irresponsible drivers, a lot of those folks. But then there's the other people who really approach the task of driving in a much more responsible way. They don't speed. They don't let themselves be distracted when they're behind the wheel. They don't panic when they see a cop because they're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> they're driven by the police and immediately you slam on your brakes. It's like, <gasps> you know, and the reason they don't have to do that is because they're basically good drivers. 
Bad drivers, good drivers. But you know what? Imagine this for a minute. If you could somehow renew your driver's license, and the way you had to do it was you had to have a perfect, completely spotless driving, not record, but history. I don't mean that you'd never been caught speeding, or you failed to use your, you got caught, failed to use your blinker, or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that you've never done it. Not that you haven't got caught, but you've never, ever done it. Think if they had an all-knowing computer down at the DMV, and you went in there, and you put your fingerprint on, and immediately it came up. Oh, you know what? You know, you, you turned left when you should have turned right. You didn't stop here. That was California stop. That's against you, too. Boom, boom, boom. Sorry, we're not going to give you a license. If they could keep track of every time we blew through an intersection or something like that, none of us would be able to get our driver's license. Not one. Even if you're a crazy maniac driver, even if you're a good driver. Even good drivers make mistakes. And that's where we stand before God. That's the way it is with sin in our life. Even though you may be a good driver, even though you, know, you, you may not purposely go out and speed, there's still some offenses that you're going to commit. Maybe even unknowingly. It's the same way with sin. You're still not good enough. Even though you may be a good person, you're not good enough to meet the standard of perfection. Because that's what God's standard is. And left to your own devices, you'd never make it into heaven on your own merits. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why we call him Jesus. He came to forgive us our sins. That means he, he, he takes them off our record. He wipes it clean. You know how when you go down to the DMV and you want to see how many points are on your record, and you say, well, you know, if three more years, you'll lose these, and or whatever, or maybe you never got a ticket. I, I've gotten a couple of tickets, so I know what that's like. I don't think I have anything on my record now. I've been pretty good lately. So, but uh, you never know. know. So, um, but, you know, when Jesus forgives us our sin, he wipes out all that sin. He, it's as if we have a clean slate. Isaiah 38, 17 says that God puts our sins behind his back. Doesn't even see him. Micah 7, 19 says he tramples our sin under his feet and throws them into the depths of the ocean. I heard one preacher say, and then he hangs up a no fishing sign. <laughs> Isaiah 43, 25 says that he blots out our transgressions and remembers our sins no more. And the reason is because Jesus came into the world to forgive us our sins. That's, that's, that's the hope that we have in Christ. That we don't have to carry the burden of our sin around anymore. That He has forgiven us from that. But there's a second thing that Jesus does as Savior. He also delivers us from our sins. You say, well, what's the difference? He came into the world to forgive us our sins, but He also came into the world to deliver us from our sins. You remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus approaching him, as Jesus was coming to John to be baptized, John looked at him and said, look, the Lamb of God, who what? who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 He not only wants to forgive your sin, He wants to take it out of your life. He not only wants to wipe your driving record clean, He teaches you how to drive <laughs> in the right way. Because sin always presents two problems in our lives. First of all, it separates us from God. God is holy, as we sang this morning. There's no way that, that sin could ever stand in His presence. He wouldn't allow it. Sin separates us from God. Secondly, it wrecks our lives. 
It just wrecks our lives. Have you ever watched some of these reality shows on TV? You know, I see, I, I like to watch cops once in a while and stuff, and you, you see these people, and they're just all strung out on drugs and, you know, whatever. Uh, and their life is just a wreck. You go into these homes and you look and, you know, the children aren't being fed and there's clothes all over the place, there's roaches, it's disgusting. Why? Because they're just steeped in sin. And they need a Savior. It separates us from God, it also wrecks our lives. Well, Jesus solves both of those problems. He forgives us of our sin, wipes the, the, the slate clean, but He also delivers us from them. Think about it, if you were sailing or flying across the ocean and the plane stalled and you had a parachute and you jumped out and you were floating around in the middle of the ocean, hundreds, thousands of miles from anywhere, you could probably tread water for a little while. Finally, somebody comes along and they throw you a life preserver. Say, hey, thanks, and you get that life preserver and you put it around you, then they leave you there. They just leave you there in the middle of the ocean, thousands of miles from anywhere, with a life preserver. Do you think you're going to drown? Probably not. I starve to death, I might get eaten by sharks, but hopefully you won't drown because you have that life preserver. No longer at the risk of drowning, but all they can do is float around in the middle of this ocean, hanging on to that life preserver. See, he's no longer at the risk of drowning, but he's really still powerless in that water. There's nothing he can do. There's nobody there to help him. He's just got a life preserver. See, if Jesus, all he did was forgive us of our sins, it would be like him throwing us a life preserver in the middle of the ocean and then leaving us there just to float around, leaving us powerless. See, but Jesus not only forgives us of our sins, but he empowers us with the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. That's why when we sing that song, we have what? Victory in Jesus, our Savior forever. That's so important to understand. As a Christian, that you know what? You don't have to anymore listen to Satan and all his lies and, and give in to your flesh. You don't have to. Not that you never will, but you don't have to do that anymore. For the first time as a believer in Christ, you have the power to stand against Satan and say, you know what, no thanks. I'm not going to go there anymore. And you can trust the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you with a power that rose Jesus out of the grave. I think if he rose Jesus out of the grave, your little sin problem is it's not a big deal for him. But see, sometimes we fall in love with our sin, and when we fall in love with our sin, we, we just love it too much to, to let go of it. So it continues to eat away at our lives. And the whole time Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? This isn't good. Tapping us on the shoulder. The Holy Spirit's convicting us. You know what? You need to give this up. Stop this. Stop this. It's not good for you. You're just floating around out there. You're not using the power I've given to you. See, when Jesus came to save us from our sin, he came to do both. He came to forgive us and he came to empower us to live a victorious life. I bet you every person in this room knows what it feels like to be powerless over sin. I bet you everybody in this room has dealt with some sin or another sin where you just felt powerless. You couldn't do anything about it. I'm here to tell you that Christ gives you the power to do with, deal with it. I mean, there are some sins, some struggle, you know, longer and harder with some and stronger and others. But you know what? They're not stronger than God's grace. 
No sin is stronger than God's grace. He has the power and the help to overcome any sin. The Bible says in John 4, 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you, Christ, is what? Greater than he who is in the world. Don't you believe for a second, believer here today, that, that oh, you know what, I'm just, I'm just destined to live this defeated Christian life, and woe is me, you know, I have this or that in my that I just can't break this. Don't believe that. That's a lie from Satan. The Bible says very clearly that, you know what, the one that resides within you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. Satan's just a chump. And he's, he's just trying to get you to believe his, his lies. If he can do that, then he's defeated you, for the most part, at least here practically on earth. But Jesus came to be our Savior. He came to save us from our sins. And that means, as the, 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 sermon, the classic sermon on salvation goes, he takes away the penalty of sin. And he takes away the power of sin. And he takes away the presence, eventually, of sin. He's our Savior. Third thing there, the name, verse 22 of Matthew 1. It says, all this took place, or so all this was done, that it might be fulfilled that what was spoken of the Lord, by the Lord, through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. Third thing that, that this, this points out to us is not only is Jesus the anointed one, he's our, our Lord, not only is our, our Savior, but he's also our companion. He's, he's our companion. It says there, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. I mean, are you glad that we don't serve a, a God who's distant? We don't serve a God that's up on some puffy cloud somewhere and doesn't even know what we're doing down here. He doesn't view us from afar. And that we just serve him in obscurity until, you know, one day maybe, you know, um, we can meet him. We've all sang the hymn probably uh, in the garden. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. Some people have looked at that song and said, you know what, that's not a theologically correct song. That kind of brings... God down. That, that, that doesn't have a high view. It, it kind of gets too chummy with God. And maybe they're right to some extent. It's kind of like the, the song that we were singing this morning. Uh, uh, Come, now is the time to worship. Come as you are. Well, that's theologically correct. When you come to Christ, you don't clean up. It's like going home and saying, hey dear, you know, I'm going to go outside and rinse off with the hose so I can take a bath. Wouldn't make any sense. Unless you're really, really, really dirty and she wouldn't let you in the house. But that wouldn't make any sense. You don't, you don't take a shower to, 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 to clean up to take a shower. So when we come to Christ, we do. We come just as we are, sin and all. We bring it all. We lay it before him and say, hey, you know what? We need a Savior. But God is not some God from afar. And he does walk with us. And he does talk with us. It's not that we shouldn't have a high view of God. We should. You know, we, we don't want to refer to God as, oh, the big man upstairs. or you know, Names like that demean God. But we do want to understand that I think the problem with Christians today is that their view of God is that he, they serve God from a distance. They don't allow themselves to experience His presence in their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. I think I shared this before, but I'll share it again. I remember when we were down at the Shepherds Conference. 
young couple, college couple, they were dating and getting, you know, ready to be engaged or whatever. And they went to, they were going to John MacArthur's church and they went in one day to the youth pastor and they sat down and just had long faces. And he said, like, what's up? And basically they said, you know, we blew it. He said, what do you mean? Said, we went too far physically before, you know. And the youth pastor looked at him and he goes, I know. What do you mean you know? Somebody saw you. And they said, what? Somebody saw us? Who? Who was it? Who saw us? And the youth pastor looked at him and said, God saw you. And you know what their response was? Oh, boy. <laughs> I thought you meant somebody really saw us. <laughs> See, that's how we view God sometimes. He's a distant. We can get away with this little sin here. You know, it's not hurting anybody. And you know what? It hurts God. It hurts the heart of God. And we need to forsake it. We need to, you know, distance ourselves from those things. Because Jesus came into the world to be our companion, to be God with us. He came into the world to tell the world that, you know what, you are worth dying for. His earthly life was God, was, was God with us. That's why he, he came down here. And He's still with us each and every day. He lives in our hearts. And that's, you know, some people say, well, Christ is in heaven. That's true. But He resides in our hearts and through what's called the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says that we have such a close fellowship with Christ, such a bond with Christ, that He's our companion. Where you are, He's there. He's always with you. There's a story of a, a bishop or goth of the Hungarian Lutheran Church. And he was imprisoned in solitary confinement for more than six years, all by himself in this little small cell. And his captors basically tried to break his resistance by depriving him of any contact with anyone. Literally. I mean, they would, they would shove his food under this, this door. They wouldn't even talk to him, nothing. They weren't allowed to. And after he was released, he said, they thought that I was alone in my cell. They were wrong. The risen Christ was present in that room. And that's the God that we serve, beloved. Jesus, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Lord saves. Christ, God's anointed one. Well, a couple things we, we read here this morning about Joseph really kind of blew me away. I mean, if you stop and you put yourself in Joseph's shoes... You stop and you look at Joseph and, you know, you're, you're uh, basically um, ready to get married to someone. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, you find out this someone is pregnant. That's not a very good thing. Um, we don't know a lot about Mary and Joseph, by the way. Just the word doesn't share a lot about it. We'll share a little bit next week. Um, but, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot. And... It kind of gives us a glimpse of this great love that, that Joseph had for Mary because of the situation. He didn't want to put her away publicly. He didn't want to shame her in any way. Mary was probably a teenager. Both of them were probably 16 or younger. Um, some people believe G G uh, Joseph was a little older 
but that's irregardless, whatever it is. Um, you know, it says that in, in the Bible there, it says that because Joseph, her husband, was a just man or a righteous man, he didn't want to shame her publicly. So he put her away. He wanted to give her a, a certificate of divorce quietly. You have to understand the custom back then. The first step in a, in a marital situation was the kind of the engagement. And it was a contract arranged by family. And usually they would uh, uh, make this contract sometimes even when the children were little that these two people will be married. And they still had an option to opt out if they didn't, whatever, but that's, that's how it worked. And if they wanted to opt out at any time, this first step was okay, you can do that and there's no consequences because it wasn't really the full marriage. The second step was called betrothal and that's where Joseph and Mary found themselves. It was similar to engagement, but it was kind of stricter in its application, you might say. The only way a betrothal could be terminated was by a certificate of divorce. And the couple was considered for legal purposes, husband and wife, even though during that time they didn't live together, they didn't probably lived in different towns even. And then the third, and they'd usually be in that kind of second step for about a year, and then uh, the third step was when the couple came together as man and wolf, wife and man and wolf, uh, man and wife, <laughs> and consummated their union um, and, and began living together. Well, it was during the second stage of this marriage process, during the betrothal time, that Mary was discovered to be pregnant. They weren't living together. They were probably weren't living in the same village, and yet Mary was expecting a child. Now, obviously, Joseph probably felt betrayed. He probably felt a lot of different things. Mary had been unfaithful, whatever. Um, and it doesn't tell us that, but I'm sure that he was devastated. Who wouldn't be? And divorce wasn't unheard of in those days. It wasn't that uncommon. Um, and so, you know, he thought, well, if he did this quietly, maybe because he loved her so much, maybe she could go on with her life or whatever. But he was a righteous man. He didn't want to, uh, you know, participate in this situation. And it said, after considering this in verse 20 and 21, that the angel came to Joseph and said, hey, uh, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to marry, uh, marry, uh, make her as your wife because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. And you notice the Bible says that Joseph did exactly as the angel commanded. He took Mary home to be his wife. By doing this, he was claiming responsibility for Mary's child. Probably still didn't figure the whole thing out. Now, you can imagine neighbors and whatnot, I mean, talking about this. I mean, that's a you know, a tawdry thing to go through. But you know what? Joseph was courageously obedient, you might even call him, to God. Even though this plan didn't work out the way he wanted it to, you know what? He wanted to follow God with all his heart. You know what? There's always a cost. There's always a cost involved when you, when you yield to the call of God in your life. There's always a cost. Even for salvation. The cost is paid for by Christ, but there's still a yielding. There's still a walking away from your own sin and turning to Christ. In Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I tell you to do? See, when you, when you receive the call of salvation upon your life and you yield your life to Christ, you're giving up the driver's seat to somebody else. 
the Holy Spirit. You're saying, hey, you know what, Holy Spirit, I, I want to do what you want me to do. I don't want to do what I want to do anymore. And that's got to be over and over on a daily basis. That's a call to salvation. There's also a call to service. Every believer is to be involved in some form of, of serving Christ. It doesn't matter what it is. But at, at some point in your life, after salvation, God should show you, hey, you know what, here are your, your God-given talents. Here is your God-given gifts. You know what, you need to employ these, use these, within the, the church and outside the church, to glorify me. God didn't save us to be spectators, beloved. He, he saved us to serve. He always saves us to serve. He called us to salvation. He calls us to service. And then there's even another calling on, on certain individuals' lives that, that, that there's even a, a higher cost. Because it's, it's a life calling. You think of the Apostle Paul just kind of out there killing Christians and God meets him on the road one day. He gets saved. He gets converted. Well, all of a sudden, what happens? God calls him into ministry. And God used him in an incredible way. Most of the New Testament was penned by that man. At any time, he could have said, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll come to you for salvation, but this service stuff is too much. If you choose to live a life of obedience to God, sometimes there's, you know, even your reputation can be at stake. And you think about Joseph. You know what? He was courageously obedient in this situation. He did exactly what God told him to do. That took guts. All these people are talking probably about what's going on with him and Mary and all this stuff. And he said, hey, you know what? For some reason, this angel said, I've got to do this. And that's, I'm a righteous man. I want to do what God wants me to do. Kind of like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.10. He says, am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? What's more important? Or am I seeking the favor of men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you're called to be a servant of Christ, and every believer is, you better not be taking polls at every corner, saying, well, what's the popular thing to do? Because you know what? When God calls you to do something, it may not be popular. <laughs> but you better be obedient. Because God has your best interest at heart. And he'll reward you for that obedience. Second thing, he was courageously obedient. Second thing I see there in the life of Joseph is, is that character is more important than reputation. You know what? There was probably people talking all over town about you. Oh, look at what he did, you know. Look at what happened to them and all this stuff. God chose Joseph and Mary because of who they were. Not because of the people they thought themselves to be. They knew. God knew who they were. He knew their, they weren't worried about their reputation. They just wanted to obey God. That's what your reputation is, if you stop and think about it. You know, there's so much emphasis on your reputation today. Oh, you know, your reputation. The reputation is a one-dimensional picture that the public sees when they look at your life. That's what it is. It's just a one-dimensional picture. You know, when, you know, when you greet me here on Sundays and see me, you say, oh, he's a nice guy. Well, you don't see me at home when I'm in an argument with my wife. Because I can tell you, honestly, I can be a very nasty guy. Thank you for not saying amen to that, but dear. No. 
But, you know, the reputation is one thing, the character is something else. See, if you don't have character, God can't use you. Even if everybody in the, the whole world thinks you're wonderful, God looks at the heart. And we need to develop character in our lives. See, if, you, if, we have, if we have character flaws in our lives, you know, the church is not the place to come and hide them and put on this plastic face and, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? Fine. You know, and everything's just fine, fine, fine. But really, you know what? Under the surface, everything's not fine. I'm refinishing some doors at the house, taking some paint off. And, you know, when you, when you take this paint off, I, I learned that you'd use a heat gun that this paint peels right off. You know, I had all that gobbledygook stuff that you put on there, Jasco and everything, and just made a big mess. So I said, get a heat gun. So I got a heat gun, and I paint three, three layers of that stuff. comes right off, right down to the wood. But I'm noticing after I paint, and I thought, well, I'll just kind of sand it roughly or whatever. But I noticed on the one door that after I painted it with this kind of off-white color, I can see imperfections very clearly that I thought were gone <laughs> in this door. That's kind of like, you know, the, the, the reputation. The reputation is just this one-dimensional picture of what the public assumes you are like. Your character goes much deeper than that. And we need to develop character. We don't need to try to hide them. We have sin in our life. It's, it's, it's not enough just to cover that sin up. God wants us to abandon it altogether. Joseph was a man of character. He obeyed God, even though it probably cost him his reputation because he was a righteous man. That's why God was able to use Joseph. The last thing I'll leave you with this. Our obedience opens the door for God's involvement in your life and in the world. You know, it's hard in the Bible to look at things and go, what if this would happen? You know, what if Eve didn't eat the apple? What if this? What if that? You know, you can't kind of play those games. But it's hard, especially with this one, because we know God is sovereign and it's going to happen exactly the way he planned it. But what if Joseph wouldn't have been obedient? What if he had decided to save his reputation and disgrace Mary? By law, she could have actually been stoned to death. You realize that? The child could have died along with her. Joseph's disobedience could have brought God's plan of salvation to a screeching halt. Now, we know theologically that's incorrect. I understand that. But he could have played a role in the Son of God's death before the Son of God was ever even born. And my point is this. The implications and the ramifications of Joseph's obedience went a lot further outside the circle than his own little personal life, didn't they? His act of obedience not only changed his life, but it changed the world forever. And because of his obedience and his courage, Jesus was born into the world, and through his death and through his life and his death, he's able to pay the sins, the cost of the, the price for our sin. Keep this in mind. Because the consequences of our obedience may not always be immediately obvious. When we obey God, it may not immediately be obvious that, oh, wow, this is going to work out good for everybody. You may not be able to see from this side of eternity what the implications are, but the fact is your obedience to the call of God in your life 
could change the life of thousands, even millions of people. You don't know. We'll never know. And I think when we disobey God and we fall into sin, there's implications, even though it may just be us and God. You're not hurting anybody, just yourself. You know, it's just one of these sins. It's a private deal. You know what? That could explode and have implications beyond your wildest imagination. And when we obey God, when we hear the call of God on our life and we, we yield our life, you never know how God is going to use that. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Mordecai Ham. He was a revival preacher from the 20th century. He traveled around primarily through the South. He used to preach in a tent. There were dozens of these guys back then. Draw a little crowd here, a little crowd there. He was reasonably well known at the time. But there's nothing that would you would look him up in a book and go, Wow, this guy is incredible. Nothing at all. He's kind of had a mediocre ministry. Except one night, being faithful to God's call on his life, he was preaching the gospel, and he issued an invitation for people to come forward and accept Christ as Lord and Savior. This little teenage boy came down. The little teenage boy's name was Billy Graham. And we don't have to elaborate <laughs> how that man has preached the gospel all over the world. There's no way that guy would have known that night that, wow, this, this being obedient here tonight and doing what God's called me to do is going to impact the world. He never knew that. It takes courage to be obedient. It takes courage even to trust Christ. Come to Christ and say, you know what, I want you to be my anointed one. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to, to, to be my Emmanuel. I want you to be with me. John 15, 15 says that Christ, when we have a relationship with Him, He calls us friends. Friends. And because of what his name means and because of, of the, the things that we've seen in Joseph's life, you know, we know that we're never alone. And God is always there beside us to help us do the right thing. I trust that you will. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we just... Uh, I just want to close with a little chorus. Father, I just uh, I come before you and I thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, without it, we'd all be lost. Lord, I thank you for the message that is within your word. I thank you for Joseph's obedience. Even though it may have cost him his reputation, he was still obedient to you. He did the right thing. Because he was a man of character. He was a righteous man. Lord, I pray that the men and women in this room right now would have that courage to be obedient to your call. Whether it's the call to salvation or whether it's the call to service or maybe there's somebody here this morning, Lord, that you're, you're placing a higher call in their life to serve you. in a greater way, by, by giving up everything that they desire to do with their life and yielding it to you. 
Lord, we thank you that you don't just save us and let us float around in the middle of the ocean. Especially this cesspool that we live in today. Lord, I thank you that when you save us, you not only forgive our sin, but you save us from the power of sin. That we can have victory in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you fill each one here with your spirit. Cause them to be dependent upon you each and every day. And take this hope-filled, life-giving message to those who have yet to hear the gospel of Christ. It's a wonderful time of the year to share the gospel with those around us. Their hearts just seem to be open. Pray that we would not miss those opportunities. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's just sing this little chorus, Jesus' name above all names. I think you all know it.